I'm live. Is the live stream not working? Uh, so Caleb, is the live stream working? The live stream, I got a thumbs up from the tech guys back there. So uh, good, good. We're here. We're here. We're here. Uh, say a special shout out also to uh, here Oscar and Emery, probably watching or listening online. So Oscar and Emery, uh, I'd say we miss you all, but you know, don't lie in church. Um, so no, we do. We do. Uh, we do it. We do. We pray y'all have a profitable time and back to us safe. All right, John chapter number three in your Bibles tonight. John chapter number three. Uh, I'm going to move along uh, pretty quickly here tonight as we continue our Life of Messiah series, studying the four Gospels from a Jewish perspective. And we are at what I would call the epicenter of the, uh, the Christian faith in John chapter three, looking at the first uh, recorded evangelistic encounter that Jesus had with a moral man, a religious man, a man by the name of Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee and he was a member of the Sanhedrin, a very uh, prominent man in the, uh, the rabbinic area of community there in Jerusalem. And he doesn't understand what being born again is about. He's thinking the way the Pharisees interpreted being born again. And Jesus shows him that there's a spiritual new birth that is necessary. And last week we looked at how Jesus used Numbers 21 in the story of Moses and the serpent, how when the people were complaining, they were sinful. God sent the punishment for sin, which was the poison of death. And yet God said, you can be delivered if you'll look at this brazen serpent that Moses, that he had Moses put up on a pole and whoever would look would live. And it's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ taking on himself the sin of the world being lifted up on the cross. And that gets uh, culminated uh, in John chapter number three in verse number 16, where Jesus says to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we find the clear, concise presentation of what is necessary for someone to be born again and therefore enter into the kingdom of God is simple faith in the personage of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, our sin bearer, and praise God for his resurrection. Well, tonight we're going to pick things up in verse number 17. Notice Jesus goes on now and he says, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So he's just declared the love that God had for the world and the offer of eternal life through simple faith. And now he follows it up by contrasting uh, the, what God is doing for humanity compared to what Nicodemus and his community, the Pharisaical community, well, their particular um, way and outlook of other people. They were very condemnational. Ever been condemned? I know I've had a couple times where I've been jury duty stuff, and that's always, a, I was called to jury duty. I didn't, long story, I ended up being selected, but uh, I had to sit through another trial that was beginning to pick jurors, and it was a case where a lady had murdered her boyfriend, and she said it was self-defense, you know, and so the lady came in, and it was just a very sobering moment knowing this lady's life is on the line, and you're sitting out there as one of the, you know, potential jurors, and uh, while at that point she was stood accused, eventually she was convicted, I believe, and, you know, at some point stood before a judge condemned, and the Pharisees were a kind of folks that made evaluations that led to condemnations. Pharisees always find in fault, even though they were sinners. Now, that being said, uh, sometimes the Pharisees would confront sin that was sin. Remember the woman taken in adultery? Now, we know that Jesus kind of called them out on their own hypocrisy, but was adultery a sin? 
is it right or wrong, or, or maybe should I put it this way, uh, should a Christian be judgmental? Should a Christian be judgmental? Pastor Danny's already laughing at me. You guys haven't even said anything yet. You know, you know, he's, you say, I, oh, now the, his wife is using a biblical illustration out of, out of Matthew chapter 7 that we've got to take the beam out of our own eye, okay? Anybody else? I mean, uh, but that, that's not a yes or no. That's not an answer. That didn't, I didn't ask if we should take a beam out. Should we be judgmental? So, so now I'm not getting a yes or no. I'm getting a sometimes. Define judgmental. Now, here comes the apologist in the room. Define your terms, you know. Um, well, what do I mean by that? Um, let, me, let, me, let me put it this way. Somebody, when you're called to the ministry, one of the, and Pastor Danny, publicly, you can tell me if you're, I'm wrong in this, because I know you would. Um, when you're called to the ministry to preach and teach the Bible, one of the greatest challenges you ever face is when you are called to preach a specific passage of scripture on a particular topic that you yourself have failed in. <laughs> Danny's laughing now. <laughs> so is Rebecca now. So they're both laughing. Um, it's very hard because if you're, to me, a, a right-spirited pastor, you recognize on the one hand the authority and absolute truth of the Word of God, yet I recognize that as a vessel I am flawed, but the message as clearly taught by the Word of God, if I'm faithful and contextually honest with the Scripture, please, you know, that got to define that, um, then it needs to be preached. Now, I'll tell you, sometimes uh, this was in not this church, our first one. Uh, it's one of my favorite stories. You know, it wasn't good. But one time I, I was waxing eloquent on... Uh, I think it was, I was in Psalm 139 or somewhere, and as you all know, I am want to do, I will use this public platform God has given me to defend the life of the unborn. And I'm not going to mince words, I'm going to say, I'm, but I also want to commit grace and love because every time there's an abortion, there's three victims. There's the, the child that's lost their life, there's the, the emotional and the scarring that the, the, the mom goes through, and then there's the dad as well. The father's impacted too, all of them. And we need to be a part grace and restoration. But in our culture today, we also need to be clear, as many churches refuse to be, because they're, I don't know, well, I give my reasons. But I did this one time, and there was a bunch of people out there. There were some visitors with some family, and they were sitting in the back over here, like where Whitney is, where, where Jerry is, somewhere right in there. And I started about halfway through me going off on abortion. They all stood up and went, no, and walked out of the back, made a big thing and walked out of the church, you know. And later I found out they don't want to go to a judgmental church. And I have been called more than once, you know, well, you're just judgmental. And people say, well, I don't want to go to church that's judgmental. And truth is, if you're sinning, you're sinning. And, um, and yet, as Danny and Mike, all you were making, the Pharisees had a particular way of being judgmental and condemnational. You know, what is the difference between the judgmentalism that if you study the life of Jesus, he more than once said something was wrong publicly. So you'd have to say Jesus was judgmental. But what's the difference between Jesus' judgmentalism and a Christian judgmentalism and a pharisaical one? Anybody? Compassion. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. All right. Yeah, the, yeah, Jesus is always right. Yeah, yeah, right. Wait, let's leave the Lord out of it. All right. well, we don't want to leave the Lord out of anything. Forgive me, uh, boss. But I mean, let's recognize he's him and we're, none of us are him. But as Christians today, how do we avoid that? 
Because sometimes our zeal for righteousness can get us moved over there quicker than we think. And let's just say, is anybody else, I'm not going to, I'm not asking for a show of hands here except for Pastor Danny. Um, but is anybody, you ever felt like at some point you were playing the role of the Pharisee? You know, I, I think probably all of us, sometimes in our zeal, we can get carried away. But I think when you, when you don't have compassion, I think that's a good one. Anybody else? Pastor Danny? All right, if there's no solution, if you're going to give someone, you're going to confirm when something's wrong, then you should also know what is the solution that the word, that God's word says is there. Um, I put down that it's got to be mixed with truth with love, which is compassion, that it has to actually be the truth. A lot of Christians judge other Christians on things that they're convinced are truth, but you know, sometimes what you and I always think is true, bad news for you. <laughs> Don't you hate it when you grow in your faith a little bit longer and you go, oh, no, you know, that <laughs> was on the wrong thing. Understand that, um, as we'll see, as we study Pharisaism, as we go through life of Messiah, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but we're going to see this, that the Pharisees developed a judgmental spirit and condemnational partly because they, they, they took elements of the Old Testament Mosaic law, which they were fully committed to, and if you read the first five books of the Bible, and especially areas of Deuteronomy where God says, if you do right, I will bless you. If you do wrong, what am I going to do? Say, hey, don't worry about it. We'll understand. No. He says, I'm going to curse you. It's very clear. There's some very hard things in the Mosaic Law. And I think they, out of that, they developed this idea, which they ended up showing that if, if you were a person that was materially prosperous, it was because you must be righteous. Because if you've got a lot of material things, well, then it's because you're a good person, because you're now experiencing the positive side of the Mosaic law. But if you are poor, you must be an awful person. Because if you were, if you were a good person, you wouldn't be poor. And you see how that could arrive? And, and, but they took this minus the grace of God in the Old Testament, minus the love of God, and they'd become very condemnational. You know, it's sad that as we read in verse 17, that God sent his son, sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. He, uh, Pharisees, I'm sure it was Jesus looked at Nicodemus. Y'all are always condemning everybody. The one person who could legitimately judge the Holy One, the perfect one, the creator, he could have come in this world the first time judgmentally and con condemnationally. He could have said, y'all deserve to die, and I guess that it would have been his right, but instead he came into the world humbly, and he came into the world to save the world. You know, it amazes me is, um, some people are, get offended by Christianity and they call us intolerant because uh, we, we believe John 14, 6 and verses like John 3, 16 that there's only one way to heaven and it's through Jesus Christ. Full stop. Boom, that's it. And they'll say, well, you know, you're just intolerant, da, da, da. And I love, Ravi Zacharias used to say, you know, if God had made two ways to heaven, people would complain that there's not three. And if God had made three ways to heaven, people would complain there's not four. You get the picture? And he's, he's right on how the human nature responds. Well, Jesus goes on and says, follows up on this and says, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So uh, Jesus reiterates the way to avoid or be condemnation. Now, in the, in the scope of this entire story, remember, 
Nicodemus still has this story of Moses and the serpent. I mean, he was an expert in the Old Testament law, and I'm sure he was like, wow, he's applying what's happening there to simple faith to be born again. And that story's in his mind of the people of God in the Old Testament were condemned to death because they were sinners. They were complaining against God, and, and they got what they deserved, but yet God showed grace and love and put the serpent on the pole that they could avoid condemnation. Now, how do they avoid this condemnation? Jesus wants to make sure if you don't, you know, let the Bible interpret the Bible, lest he misunderstand John three sixteen. He says, he that believeth on him, the Messiah, is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. John is saying very clearly that the reason it will leave you in condemnation is when you do not believe on the name of Jesus, Hebrew Yeshua, literally means salvation, the only begotten of God, the divine Messiah in the personage of Jesus of Nazareth. And the disciples and the apostles in the early New Testament were clear on this. That's not something they deviated on. Uh, one of our favorite verses, our kids in Awana memorize this, Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Only one name, Jesus saves. Only one. You know, so many Christians, and this is stuff that Pastor Danny and Pastor Cody and I are committed to try to work out of folks when they come here and get discipled. And I understand the sentiment. Please don't miss it. I understand the sentiment. But I hear a lot of Christians will say something like this. Well, so-and-so, they used to go to church here, but they committed murder and they're in jail. There's no way they could really be a Christian. Well, did you hear about them? They're involved in a sexual sin, the Bible says that's an awful sin and bring judges. No way they could really be a Christian. Oh, that person did this. And, and you know what I find is that each of us tend to have a particular sin that we find most offensive. Imagine how it makes a holy God respond. But I want to tell folks, is it a sin problem of why people go to hell? It's not a sin problem. The sin problem's over. Now, there's consequences for sins. Don't misquote it. I don't want to be you know, misquoted here, but I'm just going to, let me read it to you again. Jesus talking about how, how we're not condemned. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Do you see the key word through verse 17 and 18? Is that word believe? He keeps saying it over and over and over, and then he gives the object of the belief. Now, if you want more theological proof to the position I'm holding here, I, I could, this could be a really long video, and I don't have a lot of video because everybody had a lot of prayer requests tonight, so I'll make it short. How, how about this one, 1 John 2, 2, and Jesus, the Son of God, Yeshua, is the propitiation, big word that means the satisfaction, the payment in full, for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, 2. That Christ's death on the cross took the entirety of the sin of all of mankind, which is incomprehensible to my little finite brain, and God put them all on top of Jesus, and he paid for them all on the cross. So the fact that no matter whatever you did tonight, the only reason that you can be saved is because Jesus paid it all. All of it. And sometimes we Christians like to play the Pharisee and say, well, if this person did this and they couldn't, they, either they couldn't be a Christian or now they're on their way to hell, oh, they committed suicide. They, that, that, does, it, does that what Jesus said? No, he said the reason you'll stand before God in condemnation is if you don't believe in the name of the Son of God as your personal Savior, period. 
That's what sends you to hell. See, in verse 19, he goes on, and this is the condemnation. And let me explain it to you further. The lights come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Jesus is the light of the world. And you remember, John likes to contrast light versus darkness. It's one of his themes in the Gospel of John, and it's also one of his themes if you read it later on in his epistles in 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. You remember in the very opening statement of this Gospel letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and was, without him was not anything made that was made. In him was the life and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. John 1, verses 1 to 5. See it? He still, he, John, John still and God saying the same thing here. That lights come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Jesus takes this truth of, all right, here's what it takes to not get in condemnation. He makes it really clear. It's simple faith alone. And he, then he moves on and develops a, a, a principle that we find in all of mankind, really. And in the Gospel of John, the main thrust of John's Gospel is to unbeliever. But in the epistles mainly applied to believers, but the bottom line is sinful man does not naturally like the light. I know people say, well, it's only unbelievers. Really? <laughs> then you haven't known a lot of Christians. Sometimes I think God, you know, in his calling and people who respond to the, the, the free gift of eternal life come together as Christians, you know, sometimes one of the meanest places you can ever find yourself is in the local church. We Christians can be mean people. And if you don't believe me, let me get a mirror and start shining at all of you, Jerry, mean guy, Jerry. You know, Jerry's a nice guy most of the time. Um, <laughs> we, all, we all have our issues, don't we? We do, but and we don't typically in of ourselves don't like God taking the light of his presence and shining it right there in the middle of our heart. But when the light is there and the Bible is clear, that for unbelievers and believers, that for unbelievers there's creation, there's conscience, and there's a creator who is seeking all men. Every human being, I don't care where they are, and I hear people say, well, what if we live here and here and here? And I think it was Brother, uh, who was it? Was it Pastor Danny? Someone in your class had gave a, gave a session about how we're in the, in the Muslim world, in the countries that, that and this has been going on, in uh, Nabil Qureshi used to talk about this. Matter of fact, Nabil Qureshi himself had his testimonies with the Lord now. He was a great apologist. Um, you know, he said the Lord showed up to him, let him know. And in really dark areas where there is no, where, where people say, well, I'm not going to let people like us, you know, we're not going to let drive-in ministries show a movie and, you know, in uh, probably Medina, it's probably not happening anytime soon. <laughs> it's probably not happening anytime soon. But God's not stopped. And I believe with all my heart that if any human being all around this globe looks up at the clouds in the sky and says, there's a God up there, I need to know him, that God, to keep honest his word, is going to get that person the information they need to know. I just believe it. Bottom line is Jesus is challenging Nicodemus to step out into the light, to leave the false teachings and the unbiblical part of Pharisaism and believe 
and then walk in the light. Which, by the way, if you go into 1 John, the first epistle really targeted from John to believers, and read 1 John chapter 1, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Isn't that awesome? See the, see the, the consistency through the gospel of John into the epistles and this fundamental truth about us and our relationship with the light is consistent even from unbeliever and also even once we become a position of faith, we've got to make a choice to respond to the light. And Jesus is asking Nicodemus to make a choice. Now, if I read verse 21a or 22, it says, after these things, Nicodemus believed and became a Christian. So I want to make sure who's following along. (laughs) That's not in the Bible anywhere, right? Forgive me, Lord. It says there's a curse in Revelation 22 if you add to the word of God. So I'm not adding anything there. Let me me back up there. It doesn't say that. It's interesting. We are not told here if Nicodemus made a decision. If you go look at almost every commentary out there today, they will make this, this interesting point that you can study Nicodemus throughout the New Testament in the, book, in the Gospel of John and find that you'll see him again in chapter 7, uh, verse number 50 and 51, where he stands up for Jesus. He doesn't really identify with Jesus, but he stands up for him and says, hey, we need to give this guy his legal rights. And, and then later on in John 19, after Jesus is crucified, that Nicodemus openly goes before Pilate and lets everybody know he wants to do right by the body of the Messiah, thereby identifying himself with Jesus. And most commentaries are going to say, bless their heart, that we don't know that Nicodemus Nicodemus was saved until John chapter 19. I, I, I just can't go there with you. Because ultimately what you're saying is a person is not really saved until they openly do this, that, or the other and they show it by their works. I don't know. It doesn't say here in John 3 that Nicodemus didn't accept it. It doesn't say that he did. I don't know. And so I'm not going to jump on the train and say one way or another I just know, as Dr. Arnold points out, especially when it comes to Jewish people, God's chosen people, real election, that it's very difficult for them. And I have had the privilege just a couple times in my life to witness to an Orthodox Jew, and it is a different kind of witnessing than any other kind I've ever experienced, which is why I think the the local church and why our church financially contributes to aerial ministries, because I think the Paul in the New Testament is clear that Gentiles have a specific responsibility to reach the Jewish people. We do. And Arnold says that every Jewish person he's ever met that came to faith in Messiah undergoes a spiritual, religious, psychological, theological, ethnic, and mental struggle before they get there. Now, you've heard one of my favorite statements and I'm almost done for tonight. You guys are... Aren't you happy with that? One of my favorite lines that came to me when I was writing a sermon really based out of Life Messiah and the, I think it's the parable of the sowers or the, one, of the, one of the parables that we're going to get to, but um, that I try to run through my mind that I would suggest is a very profitable concept. That we are called as Christians, right, speaking to believers, that we are called by God to primarily be fruit producers, not fruit inspectors. Let me say it again. 
as Christians, we are primarily called to be fruit producers, not fruit inspectors. That my job, that God's commanded me, is to yield myself to the Holy Spirit of God, that God would change me. That I would develop the fruits of the Spirit. John 15, same 14 and 15, or Jesus, it was the last same deal. You know, I'm the vine, you're the branches. We're supposed to abide and then bear fruit. But unfortunately, most Christians, we're a lot more happy doing fruit inspecting to look around and say, look at your life. Boy, I don't see enough love and grace there. You, you, you might be a bad apple. I think I'll throw you out. I don't know when Nicodemus came to faith. I believe he did. And personally, I believe it is very possible that he did come to faith that very first night that Jesus presents the very most powerful, best gospel presentation that anybody ever's made. Partly, I kind of think maybe Nicodemus, but we know he did not have enough courage at that point to start living it. And as you know, the theology I hold to, as a kid who got saved at the age of seven, I can promise you I had no clue what it meant to make Jesus Lord of my life when I was seven. I knew he was the Lord. That I could understand. And I understood he was offering me forgiveness for my sins. And I understood John 3.16. I got it. But it took me a little while. It took a few years from that seven-year-old little boy till I grew into a teenager and then into my young adulthood before I really understood fully and said, okay, God, you know, I've tried living this life my own way. It's not going very well, and I'm tired of running. It wasn't that I wasn't saved. I was saved. But I had not chosen as a pattern of life to walk in the light. By the way, I had my theology degree, and I wasn't at that point. Because I went right out from Christian school, right into Christian college, university, which is a wonderful thing. But there came a point in my life as a young adult that God said, here's my way, walk in it. What are you going to do? And unfortunately, many people walk away. I don't know. All I know is Nicodemus was mightily used of God. Now, in closing tonight, I want to leave you with something. I always like to give you guys something that's interesting, something for you to think on. Um, Nicodemus, as Dr. Frutenbaum has postulated, uh, being a member of the Sanhedrin and being the rabbi, not just a rabbi, and if you don't know what I mean by that, you have to listen to one of the previous ones, probably two lessons ago, and I'll explain that. But we, most people think that he probably was the, the most authoritative teacher in the area around Jerusalem, thereby really in the entire nation. He was the president of the most powerful seminary. That's probably how I'd put it. And if Nicodemus was all this, it would certainly seem to be reasonable to anticipate that in Pharisaical and Rabbinic writings you would find mention of Nicodemus. Well, guess what? You do. It's quite fascinating. I never knew, nobody ever told me, I went to Bible college and somebody, nobody ever told me this. I didn't know that in the Talmud uh, he's recorded in, in the Mishnah, 
Um, I, I, you know, I know I, some of my folks last week said, Pastor, explain this stuff to us. All right, the Talmud is, is not the Bible. It's not the Torah. It's, it's a collection of writings. It's made up of two books inside, just like the Bible has an Old Testament and a New Testament. The Talmud has two different books. One's called the Gemara and one's called the Mishnah. The Gemara is the preservation of the oral traditions that the Jewish people believe that when Moses went up on the mountain, he got the commandments and he got the written word, which is the Torah, but they also believe that he was given oral things that they never wrote down until some point in time they did. But initially it was not written down and it was only transmitted orally from one person to the next person. But it was pretty much the equivalent of the written word in, in Pharisaism. And then the Mishnah was looking at the Gemara, the oral traditions, and saying how do we interpret those and it'd be arguments and discussions about what it meant and how many times you had to wash your hands and if you were unclean, if you touched this but not this and all those kind of crazy things that we're going to find Jesus deals with and, and basically Jesus went out of his way to offend the Mishnah. <laughs> he, he pretty much went clearly out of his way to, you know, which I love about the Lord. One of the things people say, like, oh, he just was always Mr., you know, oh, make sure I don't hurt anybody's feelings or whatever. No, sometimes Jesus was pretty clear saying, hey guys, don't wash your hands and watch the Pharisees go nuts. You know, <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be great. Uh, and they did. So in the Talmud is recorded about Nicodemus. And in Nicodemus's day, Nic- the Pharisees and the rabbis had to work second jobs. They did not officially receive salaries, but they had so much influence, they found ways to generate money. That's all another issue. But they usually had another job, especially if they were a legit one, like I think Nicodemus was. And he was a well digger. Isn't that interesting? He owned his own business digging wells. Good money of that, I imagine, in the land of Israel. I don't know. And so it's recorded in, in the Talmud about that. Matter of fact, this guy Nicodemus, who they, you know, actually his name was probably uh, Nicodemus Ben-Gurion. Ever heard of Ben-Gurion Airport? You know, it's, it's surname Nicodemus really had that. Many people think his real name was Bunai. Um, but they changed his name because some things happened in his life. Uh, Nicodemus means victory of the people. Nike, Nikki, Nikki Demas. See it there? Um, and, and, and so you say, why would they change his name? Well, in the Talmud, believe this or not, and you can choose to believe it or not, but I can show you. Um, it's recorded about Nicodemus. The actually two miracles were performed on his behalf. It is said in the Talmud that there was a certain dry time in around Jerusalem and nobody could get water and there was a big festival at Passover or something was coming to town and everybody needed water and Nicodemus went to a certain Roman citizen who owned a bunch of wells on his property and didn't really want to share it with anybody and offered to pay him some and then he said, and then if, if the Lord doesn't resupply your wells from rainwater, I'll give you 12 bricks of silver. And sure enough, so Nicodemus, out of the goodness of his heart, does all this and, and buys this water, provides it, and the day that he's supposed to pay it back comes and there's been no rain. So the very last day before he was, had to pay this guy 12 bricks of silver, Nicodemus goes to the temple and prays a prayer very publicly about praying for rain. And, and the Talmud says immediately the clouds came and the rain fell down and replenished all of the man's, the Roman guy's wells. Pretty cool, huh? Well, you know how sometimes people, you know, do you wrong. Well, the Roman owner, because all the clouds came and darkened the sky, you know, when you get a really bad thunderstorm and you can't see the sky, well, by some technicality, when it starts getting dark later in the afternoon, the the, the Roman guy said, well, it got dark, the sun went down, we couldn't see the sun, so now, therefore, you said you'd have it to me before the sun of that day went down. Well, the sun went down, so you still owe me the 12 bricks. So, (laughs) 
Nicodemus says, okay, let me pray about that. You know, I don't think that's right, but let me pray about that. <laughs> and and uh, Nicodemus goes back in the temple, prays to God and tells him his, story, his, his trouble and begs God to do something about it. And the Talmud says that all the clouds parted and the sun came back up for another couple hours. And thereby Nicodemus was relieved from having to pay the 12 bricks of silver. Interesting, isn't it? You know, it's also interesting because I believe some of that probably happened before Jesus appeared on the scene, if I understand the chronology right. But if you read later in the Talmud, you'll read about this same Nicodemus. And in the Jewish writings, they do not like to mention Yeshua, the Lord Jesus. They pretty much blot his name out. That's a Jewish way of doing things. But they couldn't really, what did you do with a guy like Nicodemus? And so instead, later in the Talmud, they write about this man, Nicodemus, who basically they say made some unwise decisions. And Nicodemus, who the Talmud said was one of the three wealthiest men in the entire city. Wow. He was one of the three wealthiest, but they say in the Talmud that he lost it all. That he went from being one of the wealthiest men in the city to poverty. Most people on our side believe the the rabbis wrote this in there very clearly as a warning shot that anybody who would follow this Jesus, this is what's going to happen to you. Matter of fact, they went so far that they, they write, record a story of Nicodemus's daughter who is begging for food. And she's so low on the totem pole at this point in society and so poor that the only place she can find anybody to give her anything is in the, basically in the trash fields of those, the Arabs. So if you think the Arab-Israeli thing is just a current thing, no, it goes back a long time. And it, basically she was on Arab people's land digging through the trash trying to find food. And the rabbis write in the Talmud about how they go by and say, and she, she begs them for food. And they say, well, who are you? I'm Nicodemus's daughter. You know, they painted a pretty bad picture of the choices that Nicodemus made. But here we are 2,000 and some years later. I wonder if Nicodemus re- regrets this decision now. And I wonder if the Pharisees <laughs> regret theirs. Why do people go to hell? Because they do not believe on the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Period. Lord Jesus, thank you for the teaching of your word tonight. Thank you for uh, the good prayer time that we had tonight. I pray for all these different needs that are mentioned. Uh, bring a lot of folks in our church family traveling. Bring them back to us safely. And God, thank you for the free gift Thank you for how clear you made it for us. And thank you for coming and dying on a cross for my sin and the sins of the whole world. Lord, help us to uh, be fruit producers in our life, to be people of compassion. Yes, boldly stand. And Lord, we recognize just as sometimes in your stand for truth, you offended people. Sometimes, Lord, you're going to call us to that path as well. But may we do it with grace. Thank you again for this teaching of your word tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you for being here. I don't know. We got a lot. Do we have a lot going on? So Friday night's the movie night.